The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Did you read that book I gave you? Some of it. That's reassuring. I just don't have much time. There's no greater challenge than the study of philosophy. But William James won't be on my Starfleet exams. Yeah, important things never will be. Anyone could be trained in the mechanics of piloting a starship. And Starfleet Academy... It takes more. Open your mind to the past. Art, history, philosophy. And all this may mean something. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, March 19, 2009. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be and welcome once again to the show today, where 519-661-3600 is the number you can call if you want to join in on the conversation or make a comment on some of our subjects today. You can also tune in to us, not just on air, but through the internet on chrwradio.com, or you can email us at justrightchrw at gmail. Dot com, or you can get all of our archived copies of our past shows, including the current and immediately current show on www.justrightmedia.org. If that's not enough things to keep in mind, well, here's our <laughs> subjects for today. You know, they call it a conservative think tank, but I think it's more a demonstration of why their thinking is tanking. We're going to talk about Harper 2.0. Will the real Stephen Harper please stand up? And we're going to talk about capitalism under attack. And the overriding theme to all of these themes will be our opening subject, which is all about pragmatism and the coming wave of pragmatism, uh, not the first either, uh, coming to North America thanks to our current governments. And you may think some of this is a little esoteric, but i got to tell you, preparing this week's show turned out to be quite an adventure and philosophical discovery for me. At long last, some of my own misunderstandings and my uncertainties about pragmatism and theory and practice have, have been resolved for me because of some of the uh, interesting research I was kind of forced to do this week. This was not the show I was planning, by the way, but because of what I found, I thought this was very important to know. And all because of an intersection of seemingly unrelatable stories in preparing for this show. Uh, for example, the first thing was the latest on Stephen Harper's recent revelations about the nature of conservatism and what it apparently means to be a conservative. It has all the conservatives buzzing, that's for sure. And then there's th that opening outtake you just heard from Star Trek The Next Generation in which Captain Picard refers to philosopher William James. So I checked out William James, and apparently James has some Scottish connection to in his teaching career, even though he's an American uh, philosopher. And along with his theory that action is primary, which kind of reminded me of another philosopher I talked about, John McMurray, who was a Scottish philosopher, 
and have discussed and featured on this show. Now add to that some current events, namely the credit crisis and the auto bailout packages being considered by governments in both the U.S. and Canada, and what an interesting picture I have ended up with. You'll be hearing about all of this on today's show. But a lot of blank pieces in the puzzle are now clear to me. I've argued many times before on this show about how pragmatism, which many people obviously believe is nothing more than being practical, that's pragmatism. That's not what pragmatism is, and we'll settle that debate here and now. But uh, it is, to use an overworked doomsday scenario phrase, you know, destroying our civilization. Pragmatism is just an expedient term for expedience, as I always like to say. And as true as that may be, though, it still leaves a lot of undefined issues about the nature of pragmatism and why it is harmful to us, how it leads us into political and economic environments in which no one would consciously choose to live. And sadly, most of the world lives in such environments, all collectivist, all doomed to fail, mostly driven by good intentions and by pragmatism. That opening plea to Ensign Wesley Crusher by Captain Picard to get him to consider the importance of philosophy Uh, It was a noble and valid consideration, inspiringly expressed by Patrick Stewart, I think, in his role as uh, Captain Picard of the Starship Enterprise. However, I don't blame Wesley for a minute if he thought that the book he lent him, that was lent to him by the captain, you know, basically sucked. (laughs) If the world of 200 or 300 years in the future is still going to be influenced by the likes of William James, well, then we, you know, we must be watching the wrong timeline or something like that on Star Trek, since no such world could exist under the influence of pragmatism, which is what basically William James represents. Nor can ours, and that's hopefully why William James was not on Star Trek, on Starfleet's basic reading list. So let's begin, as I undertook to do, to examine a little of the history and origins of pragmatism and how this relates to the book that Captain Picard wanted Wesley to read by William James. Now, I looked up William James in my Universal World Reference Encyclopedia, which I keep on my shelf. It's an old 1955 edition. Um, But, of course, this all preceded that. And they describe William James as an American philosopher and psychologist, was born in New York City January 11, 1842, received degrees from Harvard and Princeton, and in 1872 became an instructor at Harvard University. In 1881, he was appointed to a full professorship and remained there until 1907. From 1899 to 1901, he was Gifford Lecturer on National Religion in the University of Edinburgh, Scotland, and there's that Scottish connection I was talking about. He was an analytical psychologist of the school of Wundt and Ribot, and through his teaching and writing, exercised a wide influence upon American and European thought. Very significant there. Among his published works are Human Immortality, Principles of Psychology, The Will to Believe, and other essays in public philosophy, and the varieties of religious experience. And he died on August 26, 1910. Well, that's a bit about the person. Now, keeping to the history of this development, we come to the idea of what pragmatism is all about. And Dr. Leonard Peikoff, in his 1970 essay, Dogmatism, Pragmatism, and Nazism, refers to, quote, the voluntarist view that action, not thought or intellect, has primacy. The elements of this epistemology are implicit, he says, and frequently explicit in the writings of mid and late 19th century European irrationalists, notably Schopenhauer, Marx, Nietzsche, and Bergson. It is, however, in America 
writes Peikoff, in the writings of William James, that this epistemology first reached conscious, systematic, philosophical expression and found its enduring name and definition. Borrowing a term introduced into philosophy by C.S. Pierce, James called it pragmatism. So that's where the word came from. It had a very specific origin, came from uh, William James, who in turn borrowed the term from C.S. Pierce. So that's very interesting. Now, now continues Leonard Peikoff, pragmatism is the form of voluntarist anti-intellectualism, which we've talked about on this show in detail before, which declares that the concept of external reality, or objective fact, is invalid. That thought is strictly an action-oriented function to be measured by its practical results. For a pragmatist, an idea's truth is not determined by the idea's relation to fact. An idea is defined as quote-unquote true if and to the extent that it quote-unquote works, i.e. enables men to achieve in practice whatever goals they have. The pragmatism of William James, said Mussolini in an interview in 1926, was of great use to me in my political career. James taught me that an action should be judged rather by its results than by its doctrinary basis. I learned of James uh, that faith in action, that ardent will to live and fight to which fascism owes a great part of its success. For me, the essential was to act, end quote. Now, when I was first made aware of this action-centered characteristic of pragmatism, basically it places intellectually action ahead of thought, which is a strange thing to do. And um, immediately brought to mind was uh, another philosopher who I already talked about and introduced in some detail on this show, so I won't do it again now. But that's the Scottish philosopher and communitarian John McMurray. In McMurray's writings, one might confuse his emphasis on looking at things from the standpoint of action with that of pragmatism. And I often wonder if that's what, what, what some other people are doing when, they, when they're using the word pragmatism. Because this appeared to me to be completely inconsistent with his other writings, I had to check again for myself and was pleased to find that he actually addressed this very point. And once again, McMurray manages to bridge that relationship between theory and action in a way that I found most philosophers never really specifically getting, get around to addressing. He, he makes so many interesting statements on very subtle, and distinction, you know, subtle distinctions on philosophic questions. And in his book, The Self as Agent, he writes... This is John McMurray speaking. Uh, the proposal to start from the primacy of the practical does not mean that we should aim at the practical rather than a theoretical philosophy. What it does mean is that we should think from the standpoint of action. Philosophy is necessarily theoretical and must aim at a theoretical strictness. It does not follow that we must theorize from the standpoint of theory, which you'll explain in a sec. We're apt to think that the practical standpoint excludes the theoretical, as the theoretical excludes the practical, writes McMurray. Or more naturally, that we have a choice between being a mentalist and a materialist, as far as your system of theory goes. That you must either be realists or idealists. And that which of the two we choose really needs make no difference in practice. But this reveals that we are still thinking from the theoretical standpoint, says McMurray. In other words, he's saying that whichever of the two choices you decide is the more valid one. Say you, you, you figure, okay, I'm going with theory. The other guy says, I'm going with practice. Well, each of those people have arrived at their conclusions via theory alone. And hence, that's, what, that's why he says theorizing from the standpoint of theory. And then he concludes, he says, in thinking, 
The mind alone is active. In acting, the body indeed is active, but also the mind. Action is not blind. The concept of action is inclusive. Action without thought is a self-contradictory conception, end quote. Which, of course, again, makes thought the theory, the theory primary. You cannot think without acting. Um, you cannot act without, or sorry, you can think without acting, but you cannot act without thinking. No part of your body will uh, voluntarily move unless your mind instructs it to, regardless of how unaware of the process, you know, we might be at the time. So now we have some idea of who invented pragmatism and what the idea of pragmatism expresses, you know, the basic theory. Uh, so now we're going to take a look at the practice and how pragmatism directly affects our pocketbooks, our laws, our communities, and our futures. So we're going to take a quick break here, but in the following outtake, uh, you're going to hear an outtake here, originally broadcast live on the CTS network the day before yesterday. As you know, last week I told you I was going to be on uh, CTS uh, this past Tuesday. It worked out beautiful weather, by the way, driving to Burlington. It was like summer without the bugs, um, but it was amazing. And uh, I and guest panelist Comran Niazi, a management and recruitment consultant, appeared with host Christine Williams on her show, On the Line Viewpoints, uh, which airs uh, basically every Tuesdays and Thursdays, 2 p.m. on, on the Crossroads Television Network. And generally, I've got to, I've got to admit, uh, we didn't have too much disagreement around the, the panel that day, although you'll hear another clip later on where there's a little bit more, but... Here we were talking a little bit about the concept of buy Canadian, and when we come back on the other side of this, we'll be talking a little bit about why capitalism is under attack. In the face of so-called progress, a lot of changes happen. It can be quite frightening. Many are saying buy Canadian to help our economy. The other side is, hey, instead of thinking buy Canadian, how about Canada become more competitive Absolutely. In the global market. You, you agree with Absolutely. that approach? Absolutely. I mean, we have, to, we, have to hit, we have to accept the reality that we live in a global marketplace. The freedom of labor and the freedom of people and minds and ideas is, is pretty, much, pretty much unrestricted now, um, give or take a couple of protectionist regimes here and there. But, you know, talking about goods and talking about items of manufactured substance that mm -hmm. either can or cannot be in Canada... We don't, know how to, we don't know how to verify that. I mean, I think I was mentioning earlier on, I was reading an article, Toyota makes cars in, in Canada. Toyota sells cars in Canada. Just because I buy a Toyota, does that mean I'm not buying Canadian? Where, where do you draw yep, the line? Where do you draw that and GM line? And some people would say yes. not because it depends where the capital comes from. So you can get yes. in all but sorts it's employing of... Canadians, but I agree with what you're Canadians saying. Canadians are getting utility from it, and it's keeping you know, Canadian jobs in Canada. Theoretically, this buy Canadian thing. Mm -hmm. Imagine if uh, I had a choice of buying this cup from a Canadian-made or American-made, and say, or, or foreign-made. Say the foreign-made one costs a dollar, the, the, the Canadian-made one costs two dollars. Now, someone might argue I should buy the two-dollar cup instead of the one-dollar cup. But what does that do to my economy? I have one dollar less to spend on another Canadian who might be producing another Canadian product or, or any product. Mm -hmm. And all I've done is given a single producer twice as much money that he should not get otherwise because he's competing with someone else. Yes. So it doesn't make any sense. And if you think that we should buy Canadian, well, why not? Why shouldn't we buy Ontario? And why shouldn't Torontonians buy Toronto only and not go to London? Why shouldn't Londoners support just... Support the city. Exactly. The city. And you hear people that talk like that until you get down to the you point, point where, yeah. why don't you just stay in your backyard 
grow your own grapes in the back. Um, don't trade with anybody. It does take us back to, to the early days to say nothing, before industrialization. To say nothing of the people on the other side of the border who are our major market, you know. We don't want to cut them off. So what do we say? Yeah. Support Canadians when you can. I think uh, let's be realistic support a free here. Economy. Support yeah. a free economy. Yeah. Yeah. What about you, comrade? Let's be realistic and let's let's take all the arguments and, and understand them in their whole 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 entirety first before sending out uh, you know signals like that. Good advice, actually. We should look at everything in their whole entirety, shouldn't we? Welcome back. You're listening to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. I'm Bob Metz, and I'll be with you from now till noon. 519-661-3600, the number to call if you want to join in on the conversation. Again, what's the bigger picture? The bigger picture here is capitalism is under attack, and I want to sort of continue on a theme I started a few shows ago where it was, you know, with friends like these, capitalism does not need any enemies. Oh, Lord, save us and save us from capitalism, saviors and prophets of profit, I tell you. Most notable among them, conservative columnists and conservative politicians and conservative philosophers. Oh, my goodness. Get this one. Trade of capitalism could save us yet, writes Lisa Van Dusen, London Free Press, March 11th, 09. And she writes, there are two kinds of creative capitalism. The first kind, in which creative means creative as in creative accounting, was about conjuring money out of thin air. The second model, which has been gaining traction since Microsoft chair chairperson Bill Gates coined the term during a Harvard commencement speech in 2007, loosely means harnessing the profit motive to address issues of social and economic inequity. My goodness, I don't know what's happening to Bill Gates lately. It's already being carried out by some companies looking at how to save the world, she writes. Not necessarily as a way to make money, but while they're making money, end quote. Uh, this is one of the worst pieces of drivel journalism I've seen in a long time, folks. I tell you, it's meaningless, slogan-mouthing, platitudes that misidentify virtually every concept necessary to understanding anything about capitalism. And really of what the writer's really trying to tell you. This is an epistemological abortion, as we call it in, in philosophy, right from the outset. And yet this kind of thinking is beginning to form the very basis of conservatism in the United States, in Canada, and in Britain. And we'll be getting into that in much more detail a little later. If, anyone, if ever any, anyone needed you know, proof positive that social interna socialism international is alive and well in the world today, I think it's the world's leading conservatives and so-called capitalists who are themselves exhibit A. Now, points to be made. Number one, there's not even one kind of creative capitalism, let alone two. Capitalism is what it is. It is a single economic condition that results when free people act rationally and freely in the marketplace. Consent is the operative word. All economic transactions are voluntary, and it's the government's job to keep it that way. Simple. Number two, Creativity, on the other hand, is a function of the mind. While it is true that under capitalism, creativity is unleashed in a way that can never be predicted, and that's why they're always wrong about everything they say, um, that creativity has always existed, even under totalitarian rule. It just was never permitted to be expressed, and that's why countries like that never advance. Hence, Galileo found himself constantly traveling from one European country to another to escape all these faith-based governments and irrationality on a national scale, literally against science. And, you know, one cannot order the mind 
to think or to be creative, to suggest, as Van Dusen does, that businesses and companies should make their number one priority saving the world, of all things yet, my goodness. Oh, and by the way, while you're at it, I give you permission to make a little money on the side, but never allow making money to become your priority. Uh, that's a mindless, thoughtless, hateful, destructive suggestion, anti-capitalist in the extreme. And, and, and just think about this. Do you think Bill Gates would be there being able to give away all his billions today if he had been thinking this way when he was still in his garage inventing the computers that, <laughs> that he was selling through Microsoft? I don't think so. If his mind was on saving the world, I don't think we'd ever have seen a Microsoft product. And I think some of you might say, oh, that's a good idea. But <laughs> you cannot order creativity and expect capitalism to result. The process is exactly the reverse. You must first have capitalism, leaving people totally free from the hallucinations of Lisa Van Dusen, and only then can you expect any level of creativity to appear. Now, both of her so-called versions of capitalism that she called are in reality socialism. If you really want to save the world, then one must be an advocate of capitalism since it's the only moral system based on individual rights, including life, liberty, and property. All the other isms are based on group rights, tribalism, injustice, both economically and in the criminal field, <laughs> particularly since the politicians and thieves under socialist countries are a little hard to distinguish from one another. And number three, with regard to creative capitalism conjuring money out of thin air, as she writes, through creative bookkeeping, uh, this is an act really ultimately only possible by governments on the scale that we're seeing today. On a small scale, business by business, that would be considered straight fraud if, if somebody was misrepresenting their assets. That's a different thing than, for example, printing money, which is conjuring money out of thin air. That's stealing the money out of your pocket, everyone's pocket. So, uh, you know, governments have been given the, the, the illegitimate authority to print money. They should never have been given that authority. Now, according to the National Post, I saw a report, and this is scary, the U.S. government during the last three months alone has already inflated the money supply by 20%. So I'm sure we'll be talking about more on, on that one on a future show. Now, here's another interesting article. Talk, talk about conservatives around the world um, not sounding too conservative anymore. This is about Arnold Schwarzenegger, who I used to think was you know, a great, quote, and quote, capitalist in the, in the political field there. And uh, certainly he doesn't sound that way anymore today. I wasn't the only one that noticed that, as did Peter Foster in the February 18 National Post, where he wrote a, an interesting editorial called Lessons from the Governator. <laughs> and, he, and he writes, Was it only six years ago, shortly before he seized the California governorship from Gray Davis, that Hollywood superstar Arnold Schwarzenegger proudly proclaimed that his thinking on economics had been profoundly influenced by Adam Smith and Milton Friedman? Quote, What I learned from Mrs. Friedman and Smith, he wrote in, two, in a 2003 essay in the Wall Street Journal, is a lesson that every political leader should never forget, that when the heavy fist of government becomes too overbearing and intrusive, it stifles the unlimited wealth creation process of a free people operating under a free enterprise system, end quote. Mr. Schwarzenegger wrote that his opponent's endless litany of taxing schemes reminded him, quote, of the androids that I fight in the Terminator movies, which I keep shooting dead, but keep coming back to life, end quote. Somewhere along the way, it seems, Mr. Schwarzenegger himself may have been replaced by a leftist liquid metal, metal replica. In not much more than three years, Governor Schwarzenegger was introducing the toughest regulations in the U.S. against global warming, 
the latest counterattack against free people operating under a free enterprise system and promising an era of green, quote, uh, government-promoted jobs. He was also cranking up spending, which has grown more than 40% since he has been in office. Imagine that, government spending up 40%. The unemployment rate has almost doubled to 9.3%, and yet the governor has kept the green faith. There's that faith word again. The threat of higher taxes and tougher environmental regulation has unleashed a business exodus while the state is teetering on the point of bankruptcy, end quote. Well, there's just one example of someone who's uh, changed their tune. We're going to be coming back after this quick break for a smile and a few messages, and we'll be talking about Harper. What has happened to him? Conservatism then and conservatism now. Back after this. Arnold, what a great actor, huh? Arnold Schwarzenegger, Spock, B.I.O. The card's upside down. I'll be back. I thought you could film on the card. Arnold Schwarzenegger, I am the strongest man in the world. I could run you through with my nipple and kill you. You know, Arnold Schwarzenegger almost had Tom Hanks part in that movie, Saving Private Ryan. That would have been good Hollywood casting, huh? Arnold Schwarzenegger as an American sergeant in World War II. Who better, folks? Here comes the Germans. Let's get them. Captain Starlog Supplemental. Ambassador Saval has begun talks with the Andorians. They've been difficult, but productive. The Imperial Council will not be satisfied until Vulcan recognizes our claim to Weta. I believe someone wants to find a compromise as a solution that neither side is happy with. In that case, these talks have been extremely successful. <laughs> I always thought that was a really funny scene and a very blunt comment. Compromise seems to be what the conservatives are about today, and that's why this subject is called Harper 2.0. Conservatism then, conservatism now, or you could call it conservatism now and then, depending on how you look at it. U.S. investors to blame for recession, Harper says. Unconservative, it reads the secondary headline by David Aiken. National Post, March 13th. And out of Ottawa, Prime Minister Stephen Harper said the global recession was caused by U.S. consumers and investors who believed in the unconservative idea that they could borrow without consequences. In a speech last night to a group of supporters attending a fundraising dinner for a conservative think tank, Mr. Harper delivered a frank diagnosis of the world's economic problems. The group had gathered to kick off a three-day conference organized by the Manning Institute for Democracy, a think tank headed by Preston Manning, the Reform Party founder, and one of Mr. Harper's first political bosses. Mr. Harper suggested that A, a volatile mix of cheap and easy-to-get credit, along with consumers and investors who failed to conquer their long-term financial health, did not infect Canada in the same way as it did in the U.S., our banks upheld prudent lending standards, said Harper. Our consumers exercised more restraint, and our government made affordable tax reductions. 
Don't let anyone tell you the opposition would have done the same things, Mr. Harper said. They would not have brought in any tax reductions at all. Nonetheless, Mr. Harper conceded that, as a conservative, he believes governments have an important and central role. Governments don't believe, or conservatives don't believe in big government, he said, the welfare state, that, that, it, that that's the solution to all problems. We didn't believe it before the recession. But neither can conservatives believe today that the marketplace, that which I call Wall Street, is the solution to all problems, end quote. Well, that's from the National Post uh, last week, Friday. Well, of course Wall Street isn't the solution to all problems. I've never, ever heard anybody say that. Red herring, red herring, blue betrayal. First, first of all, let me say to Mr. Harper that Wall Street is not the marketplace, okay? The marketplace is always global, as I've been illustrating several times over the past few shows. The only question with regard to the marketplace is whether it is a free marketplace where each participant voluntarily invests and buys and sells with other voluntary participants with the same freedom, or whether you are in an unfree marketplace where governments will control the economic choices of individual participants in that marketplace. That's the only issue that ever relates to the concept, the marketplace, whether it's free or whether it's not. And every time you hear somebody say the marketplace isn't the answer, they're talking about the free market and what they want to justify is coercion in that marketplace. It's just the same thing as with altruism and charity that we went into a couple of weeks ago where you heard everybody fall over themselves wanting to avoid the moral judgment of what they are actually advocating. Wall Street is a conglomeration of private economic interests and as well government economic interests. And interests such as those should be kept in a competitive free environment all the time, such as the first one I described, and not allowed to be politicized like the second one I described. And if borrowing, this is the weird part, if borrowing is, is the cause of a recession, according to Harper, you know, an unconservative and volatile mix of cheap and easy to get credit, then how does he explain his government's current policy of making credit cheaper and easier than it ever has been in Canadian history? What's that about? Quote, lowest interest rates in history, reads the front page headline of the March 4th Free Press. Central bank rate 0.5%, prime rate 2.5%. You know, pragmatism has Harper running in circle, and I say that as a singular. Cheap money is the source of the problem, therefore my party will make certain that all Canadians will have cheap money. Oh, and by the way, you're evil and unconservative if you take advantage of my offer. That's basically the message he's given. Lori Goldstein, same thing. On top of that, he says, you know, here, here's an article from Lori Goldstein. Interest rates didn't do, interest rate cuts, rather, didn't do the job, March 4th. While the central bank rate has been dropping, interest rate rates chartered banks charge to their customers for things like business loans and mortgages have remained relatively high and hard to get. Everyone from Flaherty to McGinty has criticized the banks for hoarding cash and refusing to give credit to cash-starved businesses and consumers. Banks counter they're extending more credit over a year-to-year -year basis, but have to do it cautiously so as not to be stuck with more bad loans. Yesterday, the Bank of Canada said it may introduce a new stimulative measure next month, such as creditive and quantitative easing meaning the bank would pour more money into our financial system by buying up government bonds and commercial debt in another bid to free up credit, end quote. What is Harper doing? The very thing he runs around condemning in other people. Uh, it just blows me away. Utterly amazing. And, you know, 
the the banks don't want to lend out money at zero and two percent rate to, to people that they can't trust and who don't know whether they're ever going to get it back who may be unemployed they just can't even go that bad they're, the governments are actually pushing them into it and that's what happened in the united states all this uh this yelling at aig and stuff is just a, uh, you know another symptom of their own faults so there you have yet more evidence of Harper's own unconservative policy based on his own definition of conservative he's using at the very same time. So he's, you know, he's advocating very liberal and socialist policies. For Harper and other like-minded conservatives, conservatism is the theory, but pragmatism is the practice, and anything but conservatism is the result. There's an interesting uh, speculation by Terence Corcoran in the National Post also on that Friday the 13th last week and it came under the heading um, is Siegelism conservatism referring of course to uh, by the way they're having a this is all due to their uh, think tank that they're having up in Ottawa and they have all conservatives from all around the world including from um, uh, Britain and um, Terence Corcoran writes here, quote, As Mr. Siegel defines it, who has also defined conservatism for quite a while in this country, let's call it Siegelism, he says, Canadian conservatism is much richer and more diverse than simple free market devotion. See, right there he's already turning free market economics into a religion. It's, you know, you're devoted to it. You're going to believe in it no matter what. No, that's not the reason. And that's the problem with conservatism. But, writes uh, Terence Corcoran, conservatism reflects a balance between private and public built on core values of equality and opportunity. All very interesting, but is Siegelism conservative? First of all, let me clear something up, writes Terence Corcoran. This is him talking about himself. He says, I am not a conservative. I'm not a big C conservative, nor am I a small C conservative, except to the extent that some conservatives sometimes seem to favor smaller government, greater individual free freedom, and free markets. To that I confess. I supported the Harper Conservatives early on, he writes, based on their 2004 agenda, and then later on the assumption that they may have least had that they might have least had a hidden free market agenda to be sprung loose at the right moment. That's funny because I, I run into so many conservatives who think that that's what's going to happen. No such luck, he writes. The trouble with the conservatives today is that it's even harder to find principles than it was way back in the Brian Mulroney years. What we have now in Ottawa is another form of Siegelism, a new PC party, the pragmatic conservatives. Tom Flanagan, a stalwart Western conservative, saw it as incremental conservatism, meaning that conservative values, whatever they are, might have to be introduced gradually through very small steps. Incrementalism has now crept down to such a low rate of speed that it looks like a reverse crawl. In any case, incrementalism isn't a principle, he writes. It's a strategy for staying in office and holding on to power. Or it's a plan for getting into power without having to apply any principles. But what, then, is the point beyond achieving and holding on to power? Incrementalism and progressivism or pragmatism also don't work. Just ask John Tory or John McCain. Ironically, Mr. Siegel suggests that waffle conservatism is exactly the kind of, quote, practical, humane, and visionary strategy that could be used to retake the government in the next Ontario election. What's he planning to do? Bring back Ernie Eves? The payoff for all these compromises is weak poll results and continued opposition claims that the Tories are right-wing nuts. A Conservative Party in Canada will never gain another majority until it can clearly articulate consistent conservative economic principles 
a defense of smaller government, free trade, an open economy, market forces, and tax cuts that actually reduce taxes on all Canadians, regardless of their incomes. Well, that sounds like a Freedom Party policy right there. These might seem like tough political ideas these days, he says, what with the global end of capitalism, the rise of big government, and the spread of green interventionism. It's a tough sell because conservatives never really bothered to promote these ideas when the going was good. And now it's too late, end quote. So I'm going to take a break here now. And in the following outtake, again, this was originally broadcast on the CTS network the day before yesterday, where I and guest panelist Comran Niazi, a management and recruitment consultant, appeared with host Christine Williams on her show On the Line Viewpoints to discuss Wall Street, greed, and the usual anti-capitalist stuff that's so cleverly disguised as altruistic concern for others. Our specific focus was actually a March 16th uh, Globe and Mail editorial by Henry Mintzberg, America's Monumental Failure of Management. And for the next seven minutes or so, you're going to hear some outtakes from that show, which was just broadcast this past Tuesday. And on the other side of that, we'll be returning with why pragmatists are the drunk drivers of philosophy. We'll be back after this. Anywhere you look, the topic seems to be about our ailing economy. Take a look at the headline. Now, with this particular story, America's Monumental Failure of Management, that written by Henry Mintzberg from the Globe and Mail, to make a long story short, he's saying that America, and you know, you can apply it to Canada to some degree, but America seemed, well, they seem to be known now for the greed that got them in this mess in the first place. So what he's purporting in this article is we're continuing along the lines of what went wrong in the first place. Indulging greed and it ends up in a vicious cycle. For instance, we keep on hearing stories about stimulus packages and bailouts. But the big question is, how much do you bail out and to who? From what I said earlier, the G20 meeting in London, England, is going to take place in about two weeks. But the sense that you're getting from reading many articles is that, hey, nobody seems to know what's happening. One thing that the Japanese finance minister said, he believes, along with a lot of other G20 leaders, that we need to be focusing more on bailouts, believe it or not, and stimulus packages, and less on restraint and regulation. Now, the question that we're asking you, the viewer, do you believe that? Do you think we're at an economic time now where things are so bad that we desperately need the government's help? Or do you believe? Go for the invisible hand. Wait and see what happens. Let us learn from our mistakes, and we'll see where it takes us. So let us know how you feel as you hear our guests and I discuss the main issue today, and it's the approach to what we're seeing happening economically. And Kamran, I'm going to start with you on this one. First of all, if you look at this article talking about America's monumental failure of management, would you agree with the premise of this particular article? It's, it's a very bold article, and I do agree with the premise of the article. Um, having gone through MBA school myself and having worked with MBAs and recruited MBAs and placed MBAs and, and lots of other, you know, XXXs in terms of you know designations and and qualifications, I think to to a greater uh, to to a great extent the article really hits the mark, um, and the reason for that is that uh, it's talking about the self-centered approach to making sure that short-term sorry long-term holistic benefits are sacrificed for short-term short -term. gains. Mm -hmm. Okay, we all come from a from a from a culture, uh, especially in the in, in the commerce and, and business world, where you are defined by short-term targets 
quarterly targets, semi-annual targets, and annual targets. And uh, you, set up, you set up a plan, and you, you work towards that plan by hitting these quarterly targets, and then you get a big fat bonus check at the now, end of it. According to this article, our MBA students, unfortunately, that are graduating... They're graduating with the same mentality, looking at the short term, not the long term. Do you agree with that? Well, Come I think Pe Peggy Cunningham, who has just uh, accepted the leadership position at the Dalhousie Business School um, out in Halifax, has, has, has also examined this issue. And she's talked about responsible leadership. What, what have MBA programs been teaching MBA graduates up until now? And, and how has that got to change with the new world order? Because yes. that's exactly what it is. A philosophical question needs to be asked in terms of what are we actually going out there and teaching our future business leaders? Does anybody leaders? know, though, what the future is holding here? I mean, we don't have a crystal ball. So you're getting a distinct feel that nobody knows what's happening out there, even in terms of numbers, far more to even try to project ourselves into the future to understand what this global market is presenting itself with. Mm -hmm. I agree. I think it's more important to look at what that money is being spent on and how that money is being targeted as opposed to how large the overall stimulus or bailout check is. Um, where is that money going? Again, look at it philosophically. Are we just trying to encourage more of the same? Consumption, reckless spending, yes. or are we trying to greed? Mm -hmm. Or are we trying to in fact change people's mindsets and their perceptions about how to live their lives in a much more holistic, responsible way? Yes. Um, Robert. Interesting. I would not say that it's... If you're talking about greed, you're talking about people who want to live at other people's expense. Yep, that's right. Um, that's right. Which is a different thing Banks, from the message that's being spread here, which mm -hmm. seems to be against individualism. And individualism is not greed. Individualism is recognizing that everyone's an individual mm -hmm. and that you do not steal from them and you do not live at their expense. Now, when you have so many business failures on such a large scale... That's not a problem of management anymore. It's a problem of government. And the philosophic issue is correct. Mm -hmm. It's not where the money is being spent, but where is the money coming from? Mm -hmm. And it's coming out of taxpayers' pockets. And if it weren't for that fact, where the money's being spent is really irrelevant to you and me if it were, weren't our money, right? So the great danger right now is I think, personally, I think that the economy has technically, give or take, bottomed out. But the trouble is just yes. beginning. Because and what's the now, solution here? The Do we solution? go for the bailouts? And never, we, we need never, to look, never, Okay, never. you believe never, history, but... History has yes. shown us it has never worked. Okay, I'm going to ask you something specific this. here. Something specific about mm -hmm. these bailouts. There are two types of bailouts. We're looking, for instance, at the auto, the auto industry that's asking for a bailout. Um, large companies, even the television industry, CBC, given a billion dollars a year already from the taxpayers, asking for more. But then there's also the banks. And from what these G20 nations are saying and the global economists, most of them anyway, mm -hmm. they're saying, well, we need to have these toxic assets bought up from these banks. That's the only way to get the economy kick-started again. So when we talk about bailouts, yes, you're against it, but are you also against the bank bailouts, Robert? Well, absolutely. All um, bailouts. Um, well, of course, because the government has no magical power to create wealth or kick-start an economy. That's a funny phrase because it sounds like you're kick-starting a, kick a battery, okay? Now, if you're kick-starting a battery, the energy has to come from outside the battery. Yes, it can't course. come from inside the battery. But when you kick-start an economy, there is only one economy. 
So what you're doing is you're kicking some people to start others. <laughs> and that's the kickstart. And that is what is, it's morally wrong, thou shalt not steal. I don't care whether a democratic majority approves or not. <laughs> and that's, you know, the Ten Commandments haven't even begun to be visited yet for introspection, let alone practice. And, and, and I think that's a problem with governments worldwide. We have gone from governments that are supposed to institute justice and keep us from robbing each other to governments that don't care less about justice and make sure that Peter, Peter gets to rob Paul or vice versa, Paul gets to rob well, Peter. Well, here's the fear, uh, okay, and I'm going to be presenting it to the two of you, but also for you watching, do you have the fear that Canada and the U.S. perhaps is moving more toward a European type system of economics? In fact, what some are saying is a socialist type system of economics. We want to hear your thoughts on that. And that's, of course, where we left the clip for now. But, of course, my answer to that was uh, yes, and not just moving towards, but um, we're already there. I think we've been there for quite a while, and just most people are still calling it capitalism. We live in a mixed economy, actually, folks. And if you look at it very carefully and you can determine which parts of the economy are capitalist and which parts are socialist, you'll come to a very incredible conclusion you will discover that anything that is socialist is dysfunctional, doesn't work, and is almost a nightmare, and is totally bankrupt and out of control, and anything that's capitalist works. Although failure also happens under capitalism, because that is part of capitalism. You have to allow businesses to fail so that new businesses can take their place. But talking about uh, pragmatism and, and the conservatives, you know, this, this conservative um, think tank that they had in Ottawa, a lot of people had attended, and I've gotten a, gotten a number of different accounts of what was going on there. And uh, this one here is from the Western Standard blog, the Shotgun blog, and written by Mark, Mike Brock, again last week Friday. And he, and he was just amazed by what he heard Stephen Harper say there, and here's how he covered the event. He said, uh, standing in a room of conservative activists sipping a beer, there is suddenly, or there is a sudden silence. In a moment of confusion, as a speaker at the microphone inexplicably stops speaking in mid-sentence, all the people at the front of the room have diverted their gaze to the entrance of the room. Suddenly, the Prime Minister of the country comes blazing through the door with his RCMP security detail. After a quick progression through the crowd, shaking hands and small formalities, Preston Manning takes to the microphone to introduce the Prime Minister. Over the next 20 minutes or so, we would be treated to one of the most bewildering speeches I've ever heard Stephen Harper give. After launching into a sweeping defense of conservatism, he would direct his attention towards classic liberals and libertarians whom he acknowledged were sitting in the very room in, in which he was speaking. The treatment to classic liberals and libertarians, of which I consider myself, says the writer, was nothing short of stunning. The, cond the condensation was literally dripping was this his response to the disillusionment that, that libertarians across the country have had to his government and its policies of late? If it was, it did not build any bridges. Rather, it burnt them right down. Harper made it clear that the free market was not a solution to this problem, pointing to Wall Street and comparing libertarian positions on deregulation as analogous to the position of Wall Street bankers who abused a deregulated market, who turned around and asked the government for help taking no personal responsibility for their actions. Harper also demonized the Liberal and NDP's party's toxic coalition of liberals and socialists, but it was never particularly clear to me how Harper differentiated his policies from the toxic coalition other than to suggest that there would be more bureaucracy and a court challenges program if it weren't for them. 
The argument Harper seemed to be making, simultaneously attacking fiscal conservatives, libertarians, and socialists, was that his approach was the least bad. The speech also contained a definition of what conservatism is. In his words, it is made up of the three F's, freedom, family, and faith. A definition which might leave some libertarians feeling even more uncomfortable with its social conservative undertones. Harper took the gloves off last night. He made it clear who's in his tent. The message was clear. You know, get, get in line or get out of the way. So that was Mike Brock's uh, basic coverage of that event. Now, you know, I, I, I look at these elements of what Harper is saying constitute conservatism, faith, uh, freedom, and family. Now, the freedom part I'm in favor of, but you put the other two as priorities in a political party, it's going to negate them because faith, well, faith in what? In the big G, you know, his government, capital H, ca capital G. But what do they mean by faith? If we recall what Mussolini said, he said, I learned of William James, that faith in action, that ardent will to live and fight with, to which fascism owes a great part of its success. For me, it was essential to act, end quote. Now, that sounds exactly like Harper and Flaherty of late. We must act quickly. We have no choice but to act. We've got to spend now. And who's the one saying, hold back, let's, let's check it out? The liberals, for heaven's sakes. Oh, man, what a country we live in. Under pragmatism, and this is important, faith refers explicitly, both in theory and in practice, according to its own adherents and proponents, to faith in action. Action becoming primary to the theory upon which the action has to be based. That's why it never works. Now, as far as family, family? Harper runs a political party. What does he mean by family being one of conservatism's three Fs? You know, this sounded just like the Family Coalition Party and the Christian Heritage Party. I remember challenging FCP party leader uh, Giuseppe Gori, I believe it was at the time, a gentleman's gentleman, by the way, on this very point of family. And I asked him, do you mean one family, one vote? Because that's what's implied by family as being a basic political unit, which is how he was describing it. And he immediately retreated from that implication, finding himself forced to defend the proper fundamental political unit, which is the individual, and each individual's right to vote and make his or her own choices. He never did clear up for me how family related to any basic political ideology. A family, though a desirable social unit, is in politics a collective, isn't it? And thus, it becomes very distinguished from the individual. And another thing to keep clear about, we are talking about compromises in principle, not to voluntary compromises made in an economic marketplace, in which results in prices and in contracts and other very capitalistic compromises. And confusing that voluntary and very appropriate compromise that people may negotiate among themselves voluntarily, uh, and confusing that with compromises in principle that are forced upon you, um, is, is just a terrible thing to do. Because remember, in, 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 um, in confusing the voluntary and very appropriate compromises um, that people make in a free market, now that's action, right, with compromises in principle. Now that's thought, and that is the deliberate means by which the latter compromises compromise all our freedoms. They want you to think that, well, you're just making an ordinary compromise, when in fact you're giving up your very goal, your very, your very essence, your very being. Pragmatists want, want you to compromise your thinking, which in turn inevitably leads uh, to all sorts of other problems. Basically thought crime, I guess you could call it too. And um, quickly, here was another 
article from the Canadian Press by Jennifer Ditchburn, PM rips into liberals behind closed doors. And uh, apparently the Canadian Press got a recording of the speech, which uh, was sort of kept uh, quiet by most people. And again, she says Mr. Harper vigorously defended his policies, arguing that compromises had to be made to face the economic reality. I'm talking about compromises that address the reality of the lives of real people, he says. The Prime Minister went on to deride the spendthrift culture in the United States, which is ironic because that's what he's counting on to save Canada. He wants all Americans to spend money so they'll buy our products. And the recklessness of Wall Street. And Mr. Harper, who has been described as a libertarian in the past, surprised some in the audience by critiquing those same ideals, etc. And then, of course, re- most recently we heard uh, former Bank of Canada head David Dodge announce earlier this week that the recession's just beginning. Not about to bottom out and that the recessions will forever alter capitalism. Well, again, I have to remind you, you can't alter capitalism. It is what it is. Private ownership of property, individual rights, freedom of choice, all that stuff, all relating to economic matters. And once you alter these properties of capitalism in any way, you simply do not have capitalism anymore. You have socialism or some other variant of tribalism or collectivism. And this consistent defining of various socialist and fascist systems as capitalism is deliberate. Like all people who want to introduce state coercion into economic matters, they don't want to be labeled for what they actually are. So they say, oh, it's just another form of capitalism. That's all it is. Then you get all those inconsistencies and all the evasions of identity, the projections of the left's vices onto the backs of capitalism, just to create this moral equivalence between capitalism and all the other isms and schisms, as the late Bob Marley used to say. And the fact is, there is no moral equivalency. Capitalism is the only moral system, being a system of trade and voluntary exchange, that naturally results when people behave peacefully and rationally. The ideological enemies, you know, its ideological enemies, psychologically and subconsciously know that to be the case. And here's the bottom line. All anti-capitalist drivel is motivated by the desire for the unearned by the desire to live without effort, to create an economic perpetual motion machine, as it were, where nobody has to work, nobody has to take risks. And I have yet to discover an exception to this rule, and if you can think of one, please let me know as soon as possible. Anytime I see a socialist or collectivist of any kind argue for their their point of view, that is always at the bottom of it. And pragmatism, of course, is the means by which such people exercise their authority over those who do exercise effort to achieve their own goals and their own ends. And, you know, really, I like to say that pragmatists are like drunk drivers. They're weaving all over the road until they hit something or somebody coming the other way. And that, of course, is you and me. Now, just to uh, close off the show, I've got about a minute or two left here. I heard Jim Chapman, of all people, make a profoundly wise comment on his show this past Tuesday. And he said this, quote, When you stop being consistent, you lose your moral suasion, end quote. Which is exactly what's happening to conservatives worldwide today, isn't it? Oh, by the way, and then Jim added, I do it sometimes too. <laughs> and I said, oh, good for you, Jim. That's a pretty honest admission and a recognition uh, which is kind of why I like and respect Jim, even though sometimes his opinions drive me a little bit crazy. But what a great, th- you know, and there's that driving thing again. But this one's a keeper. When you stop being consistent, you lose your moral suasion. I like that one. 
And, uh, you know, I just have to think that conservatives, they just never cease to be amazed and shocked by what's happening to their own beliefs today, their whole system, conservatism. They keep wondering why their so-called principles are virtually non-existent and continually resort to pragmatism as the way they think they can save conservatism. And I think, folks, pick up a philosophy book. Read what that actually means and why it leads you into the exact opposite of where you want to go. You cannot preserve freedom by resorting to concepts of family and faith. The, the very opposite of freedom will result in the attempt. So, you know, welcome to your future under conservatism, which of course is now their very unhidden agenda. And that's it for this week. I think that's all I want to even think about conservatism for a while. So let's wrap her up, take her away, and I hope you will join us again next week as we continue our journey in the true right direction. Until then, be right, act right, do right, and stay right. Into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be okay. Can you guys buy beer on Sunday? Around here? And uh, my girlfriend lives in Indiana. Every time I go to visit her, I say, stock up on the beer. The first time I try to buy beer on a Sunday there, this uh, elderly Asian-American grocer started yelling at me. Scared the hell out of me. Hey, buddy, not today. Today's Sunday. This said not okay on Sunday. You put back on shelf now. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I was like, oh. Goes, hey, you watch it. You broke the beer. You bought the beer. I said, not today, dude. Today's Sunday. <laughs> hey, thank you very much for listening. Thank you.